0: Uh, We're going to look at Acts chapter 9 today. So if you have a Bible, you might want to turn it on or flip it open to Acts chapter 9. We are in this series in the book of Acts called Where the Wind Blows. We're looking at where the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, appears and interacts with people in the early church through the book of Acts. And we get that name of the series from words of Jesus when he's speaking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. He says that you, you, you have the wind that you you can feel it and you can hear it sound but you can't tell where it's come from and where it's going and he says so it is with everyone who is born of the spirit and it's kind of this mysterious statement that gives you the sense that the spirit is something that moves um, and is is uncontrollable, is sometimes unpredictable, but that is a, a real force in the life of believers. So we're looking at this uh, Holy Spirit as as the early believers begin to experience the Spirit. And uh, we've been walking through all these different stories in the book of Acts. And a couple weeks ago, um, we ended chapter 8, sorry, chapter 7, Um and Stephen, if you guys remember this, had been uh, murdered. He'd been stoned. And, th- and then we have this little interlude with like Philip and the Ethiopian and kind of some other stuff going on, Simon the sorcerer. Um, but at the end of chapter 7, we're introduced to a person. Uh, the very last verse of chapter 7 says, and Saul approved of his, that is, Stephen's execution. We meet this person named Saul. In fact, we're told that while Stephen is being stoned. Saul is there, holding everyone's coats, saying, "Oh, I'll, I'll take your jacket." You pick up a rock, you throw it at this man, and uh, and then we're told just right after that that Saul goes around and starts breathing out murderous threats to God's people, arresting them, putting them in prison, and basically begins persecuting the church. So we're we're given this picture of this guy named Saul, and it's interesting. Who who is this guy? What's what's going on with him? And then we have this this little interlude in chapter. Eight, and then we pick up again with the story of Saul in chapter 9. It says at the beginning of chapter 9, Saul, still breathing out threats of murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priests and asked them for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So, so um, what we know about Saul so far is that he really doesn't like Christians. <laughs> And he is uh, given authority by the spiritual leaders of the time. And in, in this area, in this uh, era, the, the, the law of, of the people of God, the, the Jewish law, the synagogue law was also the law of the land. So, so Saul has authority from, from the Jewish leaders, from the synagogues to, to arrest anyone who is following Jesus and actually to put them in prison and in some cases threaten death. And he does this all throughout Jerusalem, and this is actually why people get scattered all over the place. Uh, In chapter 8, they kind of start going to different areas outside of Jerusalem, because they're fleeing this persecution that's originating and being led by this one guy. And then in chapter 9, we see that now he's not content just to stay in Jerusalem. Now, as the message and the spirit of God has moved beyond Jerusalem, Saul's going to go and arrest people in the surrounding towns, specifically here in Damascus. Now, we don't know a ton about Saul yet from the scriptures, from the story of Acts, but um, we find out a lot more later as we keep going. And what we learn about Saul is that he's a young man. He's he's sort of new and 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 kind of fresh on the scene. And he's very zealous. You guys know the word zealous, right? He's got great passion for the things of God. And we also learn that he is one of the Pharisees, and, and if we have been reading the Gospels or the Scriptures at all, you know that Pharisees are kind of like the dun-dun-dun. They're like, you know, you picture them with their moustaches, their evil like, grins and everything. They're, they're kind of the baddies in the story of Jesus. But the Pharisees are, are really just a group of people who have found a very specific way to serve God, to, um, to observe the law of God, and are really, really intense about it. So these are people who, who are dedicating their whole life to trying to please God by following God's law. And when you start to like put it that way, it doesn't sound quite so dastardly, right? Quite so malicious. These are people who are who are intense about honouring God properly. And the more we sort of think about what the Pharisees are doing, we start to realize, oh, well, a lot of what they desire as far as their closeness to God or pleasing God or worshiping God or doing the right thing before God are also things actually that I desire. Like, I I want to serve God well. Like, I want to learn how to obey God well. And I want that to draw me close to God. And the Pharisees had a very specific idea about how to do this. They were people who were pursuing righteousness. With everything they had, they were pursuing righteousness. And somehow, this dedication to faith, to God, to the law, to righteousness, had led Saul to begin arresting, threatening, and persecuting Christians. The point of me saying all this is is simply for us to recognize that at the beginning of this story in chapter 9, Saul is going to Damascus to arrest Christians, and in his mind, he is doing God's work. He's not anti-God. He's not opposed to the things of God. He is doing God's work by stamping out this thing called Christianity. So he's on the road to Damascus. He has letters of authority, and this is what happens. It's a famous story. This is one of the most famous stories in the New Testament, maybe even the most famous conversion story of the early church. It it goes like this. If if you've not read it, I'll I'll read it out loud, and then we'll talk about it. So it says, Now he went on his way, and as he approached Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying, Saul. Saul, why are you persecuting me? He said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So he was led by the hand, so they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Wow, that's a pretty dramatic encounter with the risen Jesus in this moment. So you imagine Saul... he's got his ducks in a row. Spiritually, he's doing well. He's probably sacrificed at the temple before going on this journey. So he knows any sins he may have committed on purpose or inadvertently, they're covered, they're taken care of. He and God are good. And now he's got civic authority too. I've got papers in my hand that allow me to go arrest people in this other town and drag them back to Jerusalem. All my ducks are in a row. Everything is aligned. I am in the right and I'm going to do God's work in Damascus. And no one else really wants to do it, but I am the one with the passion to step out in faith, step out boldly, and go arrest some Christians. Like, this, this is where Saul is at. And halfway through, this journey to Damascus, suddenly, out of nowhere, they're surrounded by light and they hear this voice. And the people with them, they don't see the light, but they hear the voice of Jesus say, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And of course, Saul is not immediately going, oh, this must be Jesus talking to me, right? Of course, that's not his first thought because in his mind, right? He, he wasn't doing anything wrong. He wasn't doing anything against God. So if this divine thing is appearing before him or this vision is appearing before him, it's, he's not really clear on who it is or what it is. And is it from God? Is it demonic? What is this? So he asks, who are you? And this, this person says, I'm Jesus. I am the risen Christ and I'm asking you, why are you persecuting me? And I love that Saul doesn't even get a chance to answer. He's knocked to the ground and he can't see. He's, he, he, he was the guy like leading the party He was the leader of the expedition. He was the guy in charge both like as far as uh, worldly authority and as far as spiritual authority. He was the teacher. He was the guy that was like showing them how to live out their faith with boldness and zeal by persecuting the way of Jesus and now he is on the ground unable to see. This is an extremely terrifying and humbling moment. Oftentimes when this scene is painted, we're not told necessarily that this is true, but often when this is painted, Saul is actually like on a horse when Jesus appears, and it's this picture of him actually, literally, getting knocked off of his high horse. And and he like falls to the ground and is helpless, like the, the guy who had it all together Becomes completely helpless. The guy who was leading the charge now needs to be led by the hand into the city. And he's he's brought without sight and without the ability to fend for himself into the city, and he sits there without food or drink for three days. There's a sense of bewilderment. I don't know what to do. I don't have a way forward. All of my answers and conclusions have now fallen short in the face of Jesus who humbled me to the ground, blinded me and made me helpless, and now I have no sense of what the right thing to do is, which is insane because never for a moment before this has Saul not known the right thing to do. He's always been like, I know what God wants, and I'm going to do it. I've decided I know the way to serve God, and I'm going to do it. I know the way to, like, lead our people forward, and I'm going to do it. I'm the guy who knows the way and is going to go do the thing. See, the, the crazy thing about this is, is we've seen people come to Jesus out of obvious sin, like a lot, Right? Uh, We've seen uh, prostitutes and tax collectors and people who are defrauding folks and people who are full of sexual immorality and people who are full of all kinds of obvious sins coming to Jesus in, in great numbers, flocking to Jesus. But in this story, like for us looking back, we're like, okay, he's arresting Christians. Obviously, he's being sinful. But in this story, Saul and the people around Saul actually think he's a very righteous man doing the work of God, doing the will of God, leading his people towards God. Saul is one of the first people we see in the Bible who is not repenting of an obvious or or known sin, but he's repenting of righteousness, Wait, 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 what do you mean, Ben, repenting of righteousness? Saul was one of the more righteous people that anybody knew about. Saul pursued righteousness with a vengeance that all of us would do well to take note of. Saul was a man whose whole life was built around being righteous. And he is called in this moment, or really almost forced in this moment, to give up that righteousness. Now, if the word righteousness is like weird to you, what, what do you mean by righteousness? Um, I find it helpful to think about righteousness simply as rightness. But it's not just like rightness in my inner being. Like I'm, I know the right thing. I know what's right. I'm doing the right thing. Everything is sort of like in line within me. But it's actually, a, it's a very public word. So to be righteous means to, to be in rightness or right relationship with another. Right Or, with a group of people, so my righteousness is, in a sense uh, my reputation among the people of God, or in a more spiritual sense before God himself so the idea the idea here is to be righteous is to like be good with God, to be good with others to to be righteous is to not have anything that is uh, breaking my holiness or interrupting my holiness before God or my relationship before God. It's a sense of like public justification. That's what literally the word righteousness means. And when people in the Bible begin to use it to talk about like how we relate to God, what they, what they basically mean is, are you like good with God? Or are you, have you like done the things that God requires? Have you fulfilled, in in Saul's sense, in Saul's understanding, have you fulfilled the law perfectly? Then you are righteous. And righteousness is a thing that can be seen. So everybody looks at Saul and they go, that's a righteous man. Look at all the things he does to obey God and to fulfill God's law. And now he's persecuting the church with great zeal, which means, wow, he's really doing God's work in a really bold and powerful way, pouring himself into it fully. That is a righteous man. And the problem is that we, as human beings, have a million different ways that we can um, pursue to help ourselves feel righteous, right? So for, for many people, um, whether or not you're a person of faith, for many people, um, you, you might have things in your life that make you feel like a good person, but you would never call it righteousness. If, if you have things in your life that, like, this is how I become a good person or this is what makes me a good person, um, then, then that's your righteousness, so because I ascribe to this or that political movement, I'm a good person. At least I'm better than those people. That's your righteousness. Or like, I'm a good parent. Like, I'm really good at raising my family, and I protect my kids, and I'm not like some of these other parents I see. That's your righteousness. Or like, perhaps you're like Saul, and your righteousness is actually based around moral performance. Or, or like religious performance. I always go to church, I never do the things that I know I'm not supposed to do, at least not the big sins, the obvious sins, and I also like I'm reading my Bible on like a regular basis, I'm in an ecclesia, I'm good with God, there it is, that's your righteousness. And the problem with, being, uh, with, with pursuing uh, religion as your righteousness is that it, it becomes this really tricky thing to distinguish, right? So like everybody, everybody in the world has, has something that they're pursuing for their justification, their righteousness, their rightness before God and others. And if, you, if spirituality or religion or church or, or, or what, the, the obeying the law of God becomes that sense of righteousness, it becomes really hard to distinguish whether that righteousness is from God or from me. So you can end up living a life maybe not as, as, as extreme as Saul, but where you are actually heading your own way and you're still convinced that it's God's way. It's really quite frightening when righteousness, the desire for righteousness, becomes self-righteousness. I'm going to generate my own righteousness. And when we use the things of God, and we use the things he's invited us to do, and we use the, the, the Bible, and we use our spiritual understanding to sort of puff ourselves up before God and others, instead of allowing a righteousness to be bestowed on us from outside. And so, so we can get lost in this sense of self-righteousness. And if you're like, okay, I don't actually think I have a righteousness that I'm pursuing, or like this sort of, this sort of false righteousness, this self-righteousness, um, that's fine and well and good, but let me just ask a few questions that might help us consider these things. Um, let me ask you this, why, why do you feel secure before God? Is it because you do a pretty good job of following him? Is it because you're in the right groups and you have the right practices? Or do you feel secure before God because of the blood of Jesus freely poured out for the sins of the world? I have to ask myself this question. If you're like, I don't feel secure before God, great. Why do you feel insecure before God? Is it because you know your moral performance isn't good enough? When in reality the blood of Jesus has been freely poured out for the sins of the world? I have to ask myself this question. Because even if my righteousness or self-righteousness results in deep insecurity, it's a clue to me that I'm pursuing righteousness that is built on my own understanding and not received as a gift from God. So so Saul may have had days where he felt very secure before God. I'm doing the right things. I've repented of my sins with temple sacrifice. I'm for God. And in those moments of being secure before God, it was a security that was generated by his own moral effort, by his own spiritual practices, by his own life, and by his own ability to please God. And because of that, it was self-righteousness. Now surely also Saul had moments when he felt insecure before God, when he was sure that God was angry with him for whatever he had done or whatever he had said or whatever he had thought or whatever law or code he didn't quite keep perfectly. And in those moments of being insecure before God, it was the same righteousness, that same self-righteousness that had now turned on him and was condemning him. In both cases, whether you're secure before God or insecure before God, we have to ask ourselves, is my security before God based on my own ability to perform or based on the blood of Jesus Christ, which is freely poured out for the sins of the world? See, the scary thing about the life of Paul, of Saul here, later he becomes Paul, the scary thing here is that... Um, you can act, uh, this, this reminds me that you can actually like be right and desire the right things. Like Saul didn't necessarily just desire to hurt Christians. He desired to please God. You can desire the right things and still be living with a deep sense of self-righteousness and still be justifying yourself by your own actions. And I often see this in my life. Let me just confess to you for a moment. Can I confess to you? I often see this in my life like this. I can become pretty convinced that I understand the way of Jesus or have some greater maturity around the way of Jesus or have some like deeper understanding around the way of Jesus than like, you know, my friends and loved ones and family. I can become pretty convinced. Jared's like, wow, Ben, wow. I can become pretty convinced that I get it and other Christians don't. Have you ever felt that before? Where it's like, oh, well, that, they don't really quite understand, but I really understand, and I have this deeper sense. Have you ever felt that before? Or the this sense, this sense of like, well, they're acting that way, but I don't really think I need to listen to that. Or they're saying this because I don't, I don't even really need to listen to that because I actually I have sort of a, a broader understanding. Or like Simon said that from the pulpit, but I don't really actually need to take that seriously because I've done my research and I, I know I'm right. And the crazy thing is, like, you might be right, but there's still a lot of self-righteousness at work there. And the clue, the clue, like here it is, if you're sitting there being like, well, how do I know if my righteousness is self-righteousness, or if I'm receiving God's righteousness, or whatever. The clue I think is pretty simple. The clue is pretty simple. Jesus tells this story about Pharisees, that, and Saul was one of these Pharisees, um, and, and Jesus tells this parable about a Pharisee and a tax collector. Do you remember this one? They both go to the temple to pray, and the Pharisee stands up, and in a loud voice, he says, oh God, thank you so much that I'm not like this sinner, this tax collector. Thank you that I always tithe. I always give money. I always do the right thing. I always am praying. I always observe the festivals. I always fast. I always do the right thing, God. Thank you that I'm not like this sinner. And the sinner, the tax collector, is over in the corner, ashamed to lift up his eyes to heaven, and he says he beats his chest and says, God, have mercy on me. I am a sinner. And Jesus says it is, it is the tax collector that went home justified or righteous before God and the uh, the Pharisee who did not. And I think Jesus tells us this parable very specifically. He says, do you you want to avoid the pitfalls of self-righteousness? Then always be aware of when your behavior or understanding or closeness to God makes you feel better than somebody else. That is self-righteousness. When Saul is convinced that his righteous behavior gives him a right to stamp out Christianity, that he knows who deserves the sentence of death and who doesn't, when Saul begins to do that, he is now saying, my understanding, my righteousness, my closeness to God, my goodness as a person makes me better than all these other people. I don't have to listen. I don't have to, they're saying the Messiah showed up. They're saying the Jewish Messiah is here. They're saying Pharisees like me should celebrate because Jesus is the one we've waited for. I don't have to listen to that because I know better. And as I start to pick apart what is self-righteousness and I start to realize it's actually essentially comparative. It's not about being a good person. It's about being a better person than somebody else. I start to go, Yikes, 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 yikes. I think I fall into that sometimes. <laughs> like, I think, I think sometimes I am convinced that I'm a better person than, I don't know, the average person I follow or walk, walk past on the street. Or, like, the, I, I become convinced that I'm a better person than, I don't know, the people I see on social media. And I become convinced that I'm, I, like, I have a deeper spiritual understanding than, than this or that brother or sister in Christ. Or like, oh, man, my family believes in Jesus, but I've grown like way beyond that. My family is still my family, and I can kind of look down on them a little bit. I don't know if you've ever experienced this. Like maybe this is just me confessing. You're like, wow, Ben's a bad person. Why do we give him a microphone? I don't know. But if that's how you're feeling right now, wow, Ben, ooh, yikes, you got some work to do, then what you are feeling is self-righteousness. As soon as I think I'm better than. As soon as I think that I understand more than, as soon as I think that I've grown beyond and I'm compare, and comparing myself to someone else and I'm actually coming out on top, I have, I'm experiencing self-righteousness. And the scary thing is, I might be correct. I, I might, who knows, in the economy of heaven, in God's understanding, I might have greater maturity than that person. But as soon as I start to feel better then, my center of righteousness has moved from I'm righteous because of the freely given blood of Jesus Christ to I'm righteous because I'm better. I'm righteous because I'm better. I think Saul is literally knocked off his high horse, blinded, and instead of leading the charge into Damascus, has to be led into Damascus. And these three days without eating or drinking is his moment of humility i can't see i don't know what to do i don't know what's right and what's wrong i don't know which way is up anymore i am completely lost in mystery he's been humbled and if 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 you are experiencing self righteousness and i don't want to i don't want to give a picture that like paul paul never ever like uh, fell into self-righteousness again because that's not how life works, right? But if you are in a, in a place where you're kind of like locked into, I'm, I'm good, I'm right, I'm justified if I do this and this and this and I'm actually a little better than these people or I understand more than these people and I wish everyone would get on board with what I'm doing. Whatever. If you get locked into that, the first thing God will do because he loves you is knock you off your high horse. <laughs> the first thing he will do is invite you to humility and if if you if you and I speak from experience, and if you refuse, he will then begin to actually push you down to the ground, tell you actually humble before him, and can admit like I am as needy and reliant and dependent as anybody else. In this moment, Saul becomes almost as helpless as a little baby. He can't feed himself. He can't find his way anywhere. He sits and waits. And in that moment, God meets him with great compassion. See, God doesn't like to humble us just to humiliate us. He likes to humble us so he can get close to us. He likes to humble us so he can fill us. Because if I'm filled with my own self-righteousness, how can I ever receive the gift of God? And so God speaks to a man in Damascus named Ananias. And Ananias, is a, it just says he's a disciple of Jesus. He's one of the disciples. He's a, he's a, he's a student of the way. And uh, speaks to him and says, hey, there's this man, Saul, uh, that is in Damascus, and I want you to go tell him about the gospel and pray for him. Pray that he will be healed of his blindness. Pray for him. So so Ananias um, actually, know, of course, knows who Saul is because at this point Saul is famous. He's been persecuting the church. He's been scattering the church uh, at large around the cities around Jerusalem. And so Ananias goes, um, excuse me, Lord, I've heard of this man, and he's killing people like me. And you want me to go talk to him and like, tell him about you and then, and then pray for him that he can see? Like, what, what are you talking about? And this crazy thing happens. This crazy thing happens. And this is, I think, one of the most sobering uh, scriptures in the New Testament. Just listen to what God says in verse 15. The Lord said to Ananias, Go, for he, that is Saul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. huh and then Ananias goes and he prays for him and heals him of his blindness and prays that the lays his hands on him and prays that the holy spirit would fill Saul. So what happened what we just saw happen is that the holy spirit God met, met Saul in his moment of humility When his self-righteousness was shattered, filled him with the Holy Spirit and and anointed him with that spirit in order to suffer for the name of Jesus. Wait, what? No, no, no. The Holy Spirit is like a fun thing. It's like a happy thing. Like when I get the spirit, it's like like let the good times roll, right? Saul is anointed by the spirit of God to suffer for the name of Jesus. No thanks. Like I am like how do I take my name off of that list? I don't That sounds terrible. And yet in his moment of humility, he's filled with the spirit in such a way that his his blindness is healed. And then it says then it says this crazy crazy thing. It says, for some days he, that is Saul, was with the disciples in Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, he is the Son of God, and all who heard him were amazed. Saul, immediately, when he's filled with the Spirit, it says, he begins to proclaim the name of Jesus. He's filled with God's presence in such a way that he begins to share the good news of the gospel, See, I don't think in this moment Saul is actually like concerned about the suffering to come. He knows that, like, he knows there are people like him out there that want to kill Christians. But he doesn't seem all that concerned about it because in the moment of the indwelling of the Spirit of God, there is a reality of joy and hope and God's presence that's so real that, that like the, the future possibilities of harm and hurt and suffering just like aren't even on the table. And this is significant because, because when you are living in self-righteousness, you are always concerned about what's going to happen. When, I, when, I, when it's up to me to be okay, to be good, to be right with God, then I'm always like, did I get it right? Oh, no, did I just make God mad? If God's mad, is he going to hurt me tomorrow? Is bad stuff coming? Oh, no, if bad stuff comes, I probably screwed it up. How, i got to fix that. i got to fix me. i got to fix all my behavior, all my thinking, all my habits. i gotta, I got to take care of business so that bad stuff doesn't happen. I live in constant anxiety when I live in self-righteousness. But Saul is filled with the spirit of God and presumably, presumably Ananias tells him, you're gonna suffer for the name of Jesus. We don't know that he tells him, but presumably he's like, I got a word from the Lord for you. You're gonna suffer for the name of Jesus. So he's filled with the spirit and regardless of whether or not Ananias tells him he's gonna suffer, he knows this is gonna be a challenge. This is gonna be a big deal and to like, change teams and all his former pharisee friends are going to come after him like he knows this is going to be hard but it doesn't seem to matter in that moment because to live in self-righteousness is to live in anxiety but to live by the spirit of god as paul himself later tells us in one of his letters is life and peace so, if, if you're wracked with anxiety, spiritual anxiety, or, or, or relational anxiety, um, I'm not saying that self-righteousness is the source of all anxiety, but you might ask yourself, am I, am I basing my okayness, good enoughness, rightness on my own efforts, my own understanding, my own political affiliations, whatever, or am I basing it on the blood of Jesus Christ freely poured out for the sins of the world? Because in this moment, when Saul meets Jesus and is filled by the Spirit of God, you get a sense that there's a totally different person now going into synagogue to proclaim the news. Like you you get a sense that he's he's like an utterly different person. He's not concerned about the same things. He's not like totally locked into this like system that he's created. You get a sense of a person of great freedom. A person who's like willing to be bold in a new way, right? And as I look at the person Paul becomes, uh, I think this transformation begins in Damascus, and I think it deepens and deepens and deepens and deepens. You guys know Saul, who becomes Paul, um, writes most of the New Testament. And he actually talks about this, this leaving of righteousness, His journey of, like, leaving self-righteousness behind and gaining a new righteousness from God, he talks about it pretty specifically and, like, clearly. I'm going to look at one place he does that. In the book of Philippians chapter 3, he says this in verse 4. He said, I myself have reasons for confidence in the flesh. He's talking about self-righteousness. If anyone else thinks he has reasons for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Wow, okay. He's like, my self-righteousness was, like, like up to the ceiling. It was incredible how much self-righteousness I had going on. He said this, I was circumcised on the eighth day, the people of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew among Hebrews. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. Now he's talking about all his spiritual like like report card now. Like this is this all really spiritually important stuff. Verse six, as to zeal, I persecuted the church. And, and for a Pharisee, that was a good thing. As to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. I kept all of God's rules. But whatever gain I had, I count it all as loss for the sake of Jesus Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Which things? Well, all those things he just mentioned, which were all elements of his own tower of self-righteousness. And having found him... Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, hear that? Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Jesus Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And he goes on to say he wants to know Jesus, know the resurrection, understand the new life, experience the new life of God within him. But he's talking about, look at all these reasons I had to feel good about myself, to think I was on the right track and probably better than others. And he says, When I met Jesus, when I was filled with the Spirit, I just tossed them all away like trash. I, I didn't care who knew what degrees I had from which seminaries. Like I, I didn't care who thought, like, wow, his background as a Hebrew and of the tribe of Benjamin so impressive. I'd stopped caring if people knew I spoke six six languages and if people knew that like I was a leader in the church and if people knew that I had all this experience and all this understanding, I stopped caring about all of that stuff. Why? Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. When I was filled with the Spirit, I just threw away my own self-righteousness as as if it were trash because now I had the real treasure. The treasure in the field that Jesus talks about, he says that the kingdom of God is like a man who finds treasure in the field, and in his joy, in his exuberance, in his delight, he goes and sells everything he possesses, everything he possesses to buy that field. Jesus is talking about our self-righteousness. Everything you think will make your life okay. Everything you think will make you right with God. Everything you think makes you a good person. When you find Jesus, none of it matters anymore because he is so precious. He is the treasure in the field, and that's what Paul found. And when the Spirit of God anoints him and fills him, and he says, I will show him how much he must suffer for, for my name, what's crazy is, is Paul does suffer. Paul does suffer, big time. There's a few places where he lists out all the incredible sufferings he's had and you're like, holy cow, dude. I, wow, I'm glad I was not like, on, in your friend group at the time because that's a lot. He was, like, he was like shipwrecked and beaten and stoned and left for dead and all this kind of stuff, so he starved and just everything that you could imagine possibly happening. He suffered a lot for the name of Jesus. And yet that thing I just read from, Philippians, do you know what, do you know what the other the nickname for the letter of Philippians is? The letter of joy. Do you know he writes the letter of joy from prison? Suffering for the name of Jesus. And if you read the pages of Philippians, which we just read some of, it just overflows with joy. The surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. I want to suffer the loss of all things that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Paul is not a gloomy man. Paul is a man filled with great joy even in the face of suffering. That's what the Spirit of God does when we receive the Spirit through the humility of understanding my righteousness can't save me. My goodness can't save me. But I've met Jesus. And what does he say in Philippians? Not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. True righteousness is not generated by how I perform, or how I think, or what I understand. True righteousness is always bestowed from Jesus Christ to me. The essence of my life with God is receiving. The essence is just opening and saying, I am not good enough, I am not enough, I am not smart enough, savvy enough, I don't have good enough habits ever to save myself, so I receive the righteousness of God that is through faith. This is like the journey that Paul had to go on. Instead of like thinking that he could lead the charge and make it work and like make his way to God and please God on his own, he had to be knocked back and, and made Helpless so that he could really receive the gift of God, finally open to the Holy Spirit. And in that place, even in the face of suffering, he became a man of great joy. That's Paul's conversion. And it's a conversion I need to experience about every other afternoon. Like I, I, All the time, I find myself thinking that if I can just get my spiritual life in order, then I'll finally be a good person. Like, then I'll finally be good enough. Then I'll finally, like, feel closer to God. Then I'll finally... And yet, notice that, that Paul doesn't, like, when he lists all his reasons for confidence in the flesh, he doesn't condemn them. He doesn't say, like, I shouldn't follow the law. He just says, those aren't my righteousness anymore. And so I have to repent and say, when I when I'm when I'm so focused on my own self-righteousness and my own works and my own understanding, I have to repent and I'm not necessarily repenting of sins that I'm committing. I'm repenting of righteousness that isn't from God. And I'm saying it's not about this. These things might be okay to do. It might be good to read my Bible every day, but I am repenting of the assumption that I had that that would be what made me right with God no I'm right with God I'm loved by God I'm received by God because of Jesus Christ and I don't have a righteousness on my own but I have a righteousness received by faith in Jesus so um band you guys can come forward we're going to take communion in a minute and what a great opportunity to practice repenting of right- of your self-righteousness What a great opportunity to tell Jesus, Jesus, I have been believing that this thing or that thing made me good with you. And I've been believing that I've been failing at this thing or that thing, and that means I'm not acceptable to you. I've been believing the lies of self-righteousness, that if I'm not good enough, you won't receive me. And today, with with our words, with our worship, and with our bodies by taking communion, we proclaim that that understanding of our relationship with God is a lie from the pit of hell, and that the truth is... I'm right with God. I'm received by God because of the blood and the body of Jesus Christ. His body, which he said was broken for the sins of the world. His blood of the new covenant, which was poured out for us. And he said, take this bread and, and drink this, this wine or this juice in, in order to remember that that's the truth. Like like when we do this, we're remembering with our bodies, with our words, with our minds, with our hearts, we are remembering that the truth is not what we so quickly veer into, thinking that it's up to us to be okay with God and it's up to us to be accepted by God, but the truth is actually I receive righteousness from Jesus as a free gift. And that is why I'm received. That is why I'm beloved before my Father. So when we come to the tables here in a minute, just do a quick examination. Ask the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, am I believing in my own self-righteousness anywhere? Is there anywhere that I feel better than others? Is there anywhere that I have considered if I could just get that thing together, then God would like me more? And, And if any of those are true in your mind, just repent of that. Say, Jesus, I just named that as a lie and I receive your body your blood, the righteousness that comes through faith.